This episode is sponsored by Code Health. Code connects healthcare providers to the largest community of medical coding professionals in the country with over 4,600 domestic certified coders. As a single stop for all coding needs, Code's on-demand model has solved for daily staffing challenges and coding inefficiencies by allowing providers to access the right coder at the right time while gaining insights to better manage their coding operations. To learn more about Code, visit CodeHealth.com, that's K-O-D-E Health.com, or email Code directly at partnerships at CodeHealth.com. Recently, I was looking at an item for sale on Amazon. The listed price was $69, or six monthly payments of $11.50 if I used my Amazon credit card. It was funny to me how the monthly payment option sounds so much cheaper than paying the entire amount at once, and I'm sure the payment plan encourages people who don't have $69 today to purchase the item. But in a world where we can sign on upfront to make monthly payments on a Kate Spade tote bag that costs less than $100, it's clear that payment plans are a way of life. For patients undergoing expensive medical treatment and for the providers treating them, payment plans can mean the difference between staying afloat and financial ruin. But in order to work, payment plans must be crafted in a way that is mutually beneficial. Welcome to Voices in Healthcare Finance. I'm Erica Grotto. Today, we're bringing you an interview with Bruce Haupt, CEO of ClearBalance, and Patty Klain, a principal at HealthWide Solutions. Later, we have five things to know about revenue integrity. But first, let's go beyond the news with Rich Daly and Chad Mulvaney. Hello, and welcome to the Beyond the News Healthcare Finance segment. This is Rich Daly. I'm a senior writer and editor here at HFMA. Hey, and I'm Chad Mulvaney. I'm a policy director with HFMA. Today, we're going to be talking briefly about CMS Primary Cares, an initiative with two overall sets of new payment models, five specific models, that will enroll Medicare beneficiaries and providers in new types of primary care arrangements. So the first thing, Chad, I wanted to check with you about was, uh, what are some of the early top-line takeaways of these new primary care models? You know, I think the, the, the top line takeaway to me is that this is obviously a story that CMS is still writing for both the primary care first model, which is essentially a way to think about it as the next iteration of CPC plus, and then also the direct provider contracting model, which appears to be the next iteration of the next gen ACO. Certainly CMS released documents related to both of these, but there were a number of really important questions that if you're going to make a participation decision or think about how you're going to structure the way you deliver care and how you think about your different patient populations from an attribution standpoint that are really remain to be answered yet that will probably come either through FAQ documents through the remainder of the spring or even the actual materials around the application that CMS has suggested will be released shortly. Okay, so then uh, among the the unknown, which known unknowns are, are key here? What what key details do we need to get hashed out still? I mean, to me, for both models, the 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 documents that CMS released talk about increased flexibility with how to provide care, which that suggests to me that CMS will provide waivers. So, what do those waivers look like, and what can they do? And I guess the better question is: is will these waivers be just what we currently get for participating in, say, CPC Plus or in NextGen, or is CMS going to take an evolutionary step forward? 
And so a specific example of that is if you think about the direct primary care model where CMS contemplates providers taking some form of capitation and it's based, you know, there are two different capitated models that they talk about. So there are two different types of models that providers will be able to apply into out of the gate. There's a professional model, which has a 50% savings loss component to it and 7% capitated payment for just the primary care piece. And then there's the global model, which offers 100% risk shared savings, shared loss, which is essentially as full capitation. There's a geographic model that CMS has released an FAQ on, but the first two out of the gate, to me, it's for those, will CMS provide waivers above and beyond what's currently available in NextGen? And specifically, what I'd be interested in is what are the beneficiary incentive waivers and will those incentives be stronger? Because obviously, once you start to take full risk, particularly in an open network model, which this appears to be, how are you going to keep beneficiaries in and manage care? Because to me, it's it's going to be about understanding, you know, keeping people in network, but then also having the data to understand where there's leakage out of your network and where people that aren't part of the contracted sort of delivery system that you've put together are receiving their care. Right. So I'm hearing, yeah, two big problems in there is that that big upfront cost to track all these people and where they're going and who they're getting care from. And then how you keep these patients going where you want them to go. And I guess NextGen has a, an incentive structure for that, that second question anyway. It does, but I think HFMA's members that I've spoken with that are in NextGen, you know, obviously they believe that the incentives for beneficiaries to stay within the, the, the NextGen ACOs network could be stronger. While obviously NextGen comes with a significant amount of risk, when you move to global cap, obviously that increases. So certainly some real opportunities there, you know, for CMS to innovate and also, number one, provide additional incentives for providers to participate in this model and two, also make a more compelling value proposition to Medicare beneficiaries who are fee-for-service beneficiaries as to why they should stay within that provider's network who is participating in the direct contracting model. Another minor detail, these new models are being dropped on an ecosystem that's already full of, of lots of other alternative payment models, everything from existing ACOs of various stripes to CPC Plus, right? That's still ongoing. And then there's, of course, the Medicare Advantage uh, system, which uh, a lot of these uh, physicians are involved with. Yeah, no, Rich, and you, you, you hit on a great point. And that was certainly one of the things that I was jotting down last night as I was looking through both this and the primary care first model was exactly how do these models interact? And specifically, when you think about, you know, obviously they're going to use some type of attribution model and specifically lean heavily on voluntary attribution, it looks like based on the materials released. But even within that, so how does this interact with bundle payment for care improvement advanced or CJR? So when their savings generated, both from the episodic model and then also the total cost of care model, how does that get split up? And so who gets credit for it? Where does the savings go? And so my assumption is, is that it'll be handled the same way it's done today, but it's certainly an open question that's worth worth considering and worth looking for an answer when CMS releases additional details. And we'll be following along with those details right on this, uh, this segment of the podcast. So stay tuned for more. Uh, in the meantime, hey, thanks a lot for taking the time, Chad, for giving us some uh, insights. Yeah, no, Rich, always, always a pleasure and look forward to talking with you more about this as we learn more.
For more on the latest news developments in healthcare finance policy and practice, you can also go check out our news site at hfma.org forward slash news. The healthcare transformation is gaining velocity. From new startups and mergers to enormous cross-industry partnerships, change is coming. We invite you to be bold, to lead the change. Join us for the HFMA Annual Conference in Orlando this June. Get the tools you need to take action. Learn more at annual.hfma.org. Patty Klain, a principal at HealthWide Solutions, stepped into an interim role at UConn Health, an academic health system in Farmington, Connecticut, as the chief revenue cycle officer. She learned that the organization didn't have a formalized system for payment plans. They were offered when patients requested them, but because the terms were dictated by patients, they often outlived the patients. Part of Patty's work at the organization was to help build a manageable payment plan that was equally fair and advantageous to patients and the health system. One of the big things was we wanted a 0% interest rate for that patient because we wanted to make it a win-win so that they would see that there's no interest attached to this whatsoever and they could have, you know, manageable low monthly payments. So that's kind of how we approached it. Um, The neat thing about the program then was that we were really able to put guardrails on. And rather than saying, sure, you know, we'll take that $5 a month from you, rather the whole conversation is guided towards this is the balance, this is what we can help you with, can you afford this? And then we would have the the hospital employee lead with, you know, the structure and the guidelines. So it was more of a a win-win for both sides. And I guess the the good things about this is that, you know, it works out really quite well because the patient's happier. Um, I, I would definitely say they are less stressed out. So from a patient experience standpoint, they're happy, they feel like it's a partnership, you're really working with them. And the stats um, in this case really proved to, to sort of play out really quite well. We were able to lower bad debt by about $500,000, so half a million in this period of time. Really improved cash flow because as soon as that patient is awarded, um, UConn gets paid percentage of that. Um, so we were able to you know, operationalize the cash flow, which was really nice. One of the best statistics that I like to talk to talk about with the Yukon project was we had a really high um, patient adoption rate where they didn't actually default or get out of the program. And that was because we really hardwired this throughout pre-arrival all the way to the back end. And so the adoption rate was super high and the kind of default rate was really, really low. 3% was really quite, quite good. And so that whole ROI for Yukon is sitting at about 230% by instituting a program like this. According to Bruce Haupt, CEO of ClearBalance, such plans are mainstream nationwide in a time of high deductible health plans. When when I started in this area of healthcare and really focusing on patient pay was five years ago and uh, very much evangelist at that time. Uh, at that time, we were telling people, look, this, this patient pay, these high deductibles, this is going to become very important to you, and patients are going to need to pay over time. Therefore, you're going to need to give them that ability, and patient financing is the best way to deliver that. Now, I think we're definitely past that. We're past the early adopter. We're past the, the, the follower stage, and, and many organizations are focusing on it. I think the second thing is that as organizations have been looking at this idea of patient pay, it's like, how do we measure our performance. How do we measure if we're really 
uh, doing a, a good job. So they're looking for uh, more and more metrics. All the metrics in the past, you know, again, five years ago, it was all about collecting from the insurance companies. Uh, and collecting from patients is quite different. So I see that that happening. The third and, and final area that I think is important is uh, the focus on consumerism uh, and the priorities around consumerism. Uh, patient satisfaction, again, in the past, to the degree that there was the focus on that has started out as a focus on the clinical side of the equation. I think today everybody understands that it's both the clinical and the financial. And we get lots of questions like, how do we do that? You know, how do we uh, increase the, the, the patient experience, both when we're talking about the financial conversation we have to have with, with uh, individuals, uh, but also the whole process of payment. And again, patient financing is something that makes that a much easier conversation because you're you're offering the patient many different options, including one that hopefully can fit into their budget and, and to help them pay. Uh, and, and, you know, they always, uh, all of our customers and prospects, they do understand that you go in and have a great patient experience. You get 10 attaboys. The last thing that happens is that payment experience, and you need to make sure it's an attaboy as well. So for hospitals and health systems that want to get to that that goal of no patient going to collections, where do they start? What, what do they do today if they're just implementing a financing program or they want to update their strategy? Where do they start and where do they go from there? So a couple of things. First of all, don't just hop into the current AR. I would say if you're going to start a bank financing program, you can actually take your bad debt files and actually offer this option to your patients, especially if you never had this in the past because actually you might resurrect some folks coming forward and wanting to clear this up and regain you know, their credit standing. Also, a lot of organizations will um, offer a um, settlement offer to those bad debt patients to say, there's a X percent discount if you pay this in full by using this such a program as, as a bank financing program. So um, we did it at UConn. It was a great success. We actually added a lot of money to the bottom line. They were moving to Epic. Um, so we took all the legacy AR accounts, including some of the bad debt, and we offered this program, and this was really, really solid. It gave them some great returns. So that's one thing I, I think can be done. The other part is don't operate from PFS in the back end as a silo. You really want to reach out to marketing and get that overall experience explained to the patient. Another thing that we did at UConn was we used that prime real estate, which is their, their videos, um, so they have, you know, videos all over the video board across the hospital and across the system. And rather than talking about what's available on the second floor at Starbucks today as a special, let's go the other way here and use that real estate for educating the patients. So we actually had clear balance. Um, they prepared a video, which we ran on a regular basis, and that really again, helped educate these patients as to this program that was available. So they're getting hit at different different angles. The other thing is the returning patients or the fact that you may be a, a patient, you get set up on a, a bank financing program, but then you come back next month and you have another bill or, you know, your children have a bill. So um, this can be, you know, a revolving sort of line of credit where you just keep adding on to your existing plan. And again, it's just for the convenience of the patient so that they don't go into a default. They don't become a credit risk or a bad debt. If you're an HFMA member, you've likely heard about our patient-friendly billing initiatives. But if you'd like to learn more about those, please visit hfma.org slash patient-friendly billing.
If you're looking to take the next step in your career, turn to HFMA's online job bank. Search open positions, create a profile, and make your resume available to companies seeking qualified candidates. Start your search now at hfma.org slash job bank. Revenue cycle management always has been a top concern for healthcare leaders. In recent years, however, revenue integrity is becoming more and more important as healthcare organizations look to make their revenue cycle functions more efficient. For today's Fast Five, we're bringing you five things to know about revenue integrity. Revenue integrity is proactive. Its goal is to assess and minimize risk to improve revenue cycle performance. The first areas of focus in an effective revenue integrity program are data integrity and charge capture. One key strategy to improve in these areas is to involve clinicians to build mutual understanding of the process from each side. Implementing technology for clinical documentation improvement also can help boost an organization's revenue integrity. Doing so will help contribute to the partnership between clinical and finance. Revenue integrity works hand-in-hand with value-based care. In a value-based system, clinical, financial, and patient satisfaction come together in a meaningful way, and a good revenue integrity program functions similarly. Revenue integrity is hard work, requires new or repurposed skills, and a constant vigilance. There are no shortcuts to an effective revenue integrity program. If you'd like to read more about this topic, click the link in the show notes to read an interview with HFMA's Todd Nelson. Voices in Healthcare Finance is a production of the Healthcare Financial Management Association and written and hosted by me, Erica Grotto. Beyond the News is produced by Rich Daly and Chad Mulvaney. Sound editing is by Linda Chandler and Michael Shorbot. HFMA's president and CEO is Joe Pfeiffer. Special thanks this week to Todd Nelson. Please rate, review, and subscribe to our podcast on Podbean or wherever you listen. And be sure to tell us what you think. Email us at podcast at hfma.org.